Hello everyone, it's Vass. Satnam Sanghera has got a new book out called Stolen History. It's an introduction to the history of the British Empire for kids, and he's going to be talking to us about it at this year's Wilderness Festival. All of which is a great excuse to replay one of my favourite past episodes of this show, when we brought together the historian William Dalrymple with Satnam. Hannah was the host, and she's just written a piece about their conversation for her new Substack, The Conversationist, which you can find at hannahmckinnis.substack.com. Alright, that's enough from me. Here's the episode. Hello, Vass here with the How To Academy podcast. Thanks for joining us. This week, we're sharing one of my absolute favourite live streams from the last year at How To Academy. The subject? How did the Mughal Empire, which then generated just under half the world's wealth, come to be replaced by the first global corporate power, the East India Company? And how does the legacy of that imperial project continue to shape life and culture in Britain today? It's a story hardly taught in schools, but critically important to who we are as a nation in the 21st century. We brought together two of our most distinguished authors to address this very subject. Historian and author of The Anarchy, a masterful history of the East India Company, William Dalrymple, and Satnam Sanghera, Times columnist and author of Empireland. They were joined in conversation by Hannah McInnes. William, I'm going to start with what you write in the introduction to the anarchy. We still talk about the British conquering India, but that phrase disguises a more sinister reality. It was not the British government that began seizing great chunks of India in the mid-18th century, but a dangerously unregulated private company headquartered in one small office, five windows wide in London, and managed in India by a violent, utterly ruthless and intermittently mentally unstable corporate predator, Clive. India's transition to colonialism took place under a for-profit corporation which existed entirely for the purpose of enriching its investors. And this book, The Anarchy, is an attempt to answer the question of how a single business operation managed to replace the mighty Mughal Empire as masters of the vast subcontinent between 1756 and 1803. And you dedicate so much study to this, I think six years to that book and so many more to the others. I just wondered if you could just begin by explaining why this subject and the company specifically was so important to you and a story that you very much felt needed telling? Well, it, it's simply the fact that it was a corporation. There's, I mean, there's, in a sense, two big stories here. One is the story uh, of colonialism. Uh, and this is something that both Satnam and I feel very strongly is is, is undertold in our school curriculums. Uh, people are just simply not brought up uh, around this, although around the world, it's the thing in the sense that people know the British best for. If you go to India or go to Canada or Australia, uh, the British Empire is the big fact about about Britain, and yet it's oddly absent in our school curriculums. After the the wind-up of the empire throughout much of the 50s and 60s and 70s, it was as if we put memory of this thing into a trunk and, and shoved it in the attic and forgot about it and, and just told other stories about World War II and Battle of Britain and uh, and how we defeated Hitler and, and Henry VIII. All these other subjects uh, are taught in our curriculums. While the empire, the big story of how Britain burst from the periphery of Europe to centre stage uh, was, was largely forgotten. But then there's another story within that, which is also particularly telling for our time, which is the story of how so much of uh, the building of our empire was done not by Downing Street or the Foreign Office or the British Army, but by a corporation, as if we were taken over by, you know, Elon Musk with missiles or uh, Jeff Bezos with nuclear submarines. Um, because the people making the decisions and the people who actually employed the, the army that did most of the fighting was not the British government. It was, didn't, wasn't out of the Foreign Office, wasn't out of Number 10 Downing Street, but was a, an office in Leadenhall Street underneath what's now the Lloyds Building. And there's not a blue plaque there today. No, you know, no tours are taken around what was the uh, East India Company... Um, showing how this was the place where India was run from. And it's a very bizarre story. It was a very small office. A hundred years after it was founded, there are only 35 people working in the London office. And yet this business with these vast docks, with these huge dockyards churning out ships, which uh, were either moving tea and opium around the world or, or um 
uh, men of war uh, fighting off uh, uh, enemy ships were run by a corporation. And, and, and the corporation had a private army, a private army, which even more bizarrely, was twice the size of the British army. In 1799, just before Britain rearmed to fight Napoleon, there were 200,000 troops in the East India Company's private army, while there were only 100,000 troops in the British army. So both of those, the, the story of colonialism in general, particularly the story of corporate colonialism, seemed to be things that I'd never studied at school uh, and uh, and which yet were, were hugely important. And yeah, I've spent the last 20 odd years writing these, these four books to, to tell that tale. And I want to um, come on very much to the, the why they just are missing from the curriculum. And I think that everyone will agree that they are. But just before we sort of move into that area, Satnam, you talk about the difficulty of pointing to a time empire began. You say one of the few things historians agree on is that empire was both unplanned and a nebulous concept um, with sort of no definable beginning or end. But in your research, would you say that the East India Company um, represents something of a starting place? Yeah, I think I mean, William has done this nation a massive service because of all the reasons why we struggle to understand empire, it was very complicated. People disagree about it. It's a poisonous subject. One of the biggest ones is that people don't, can't quite explain how he went from being a company in India to being the Raj. And that was something I really struggled to understand until I read William's book, which explained it all in a way you can relate to, because it was a company. It was the then equivalent of Google. It just had an army. And I think that's a very important starting point, because also India, even though it wasn't the entire empire, it was the most important part of the British. You know, when Queen Victoria got made empress, she wasn't the empress of British empire. She was the empress of India, very specifically. There's something about India that is really important to the British imagination and is central to the idea and the purpose of British Empire. The thing that was most important about India to the British was the fact that it was bloody rich. Uh, you know, Britain, Britain was, you know, the poorest nation of uh, of the big. You know, Portugal was was richer. Spain was richer because they had the New World in the uh, in the seventeenth century. France and Germany were richer. Britain was you know, had a nice little wool trade in East Anglia and, uh, and Oxfordshire, but was not, you know, a big player in the way that these other countries were. Then it captured the Mughal Empire, which was making a quarter of the world's goods. Uh, at some point, nearly a third of the world's goods. And and suddenly that, you know, was the beginning of a process, along with other ventures in Virginia, the slave colonies in the Caribbean, which, which propelled Britain from this peripheral player to this enormously rich player, which then paid for the Industrial Revolution, which, which you know, redoubled our wealth again. So it's that vital, it's in a sense, it's the commercial engine that provides the cash which pays for the Industrial Revolution, which, which puts us at the front of the world. I was going to say, I mean, you both talk a lot about loot. Um, Satnam, you talk about emotional loot, you talk, you talk about dirty money. And William, you say, you draw our attention to the fact that one of the first Indian words, and there were many to enter the English language, was the Hindustani word for plunder, which is loot. So would you say, therefore, that that... The whole enterprise really was driven then by money and greed, illustrated not least by Robert Clive, the, the man at the centre of it. Yes, I mean, obviously it was a commercial company and, and this is really, really important to grasp. You know, the East India Company was not Oxfam. It was not there to bring sort of uh, Christmas packages to starving children in India. It was there to make money. And it was there in competition with the Portuguese and the Dutch to, to grab the, the trade and particularly the maritime trade of the East. And it started as a small player, smaller than the Dutch and smaller than the Portuguese, but uh, through the, the might of the, of the growing uh, British seafaring uh, merchant navy and, and, and also supported by the Royal Navy, it took over more and more of the commerce of the East. And what really got it going was the fact that it, it seized the shipping of the Mughal Empire. The Mughal Empire was a land-based empire founded initially by a bunch of guys from Central Asia, and it didn't have a navy. But by the early 18th century, it was producing between a quarter and even a third of the world's manufacturing, a lot of it in Bengal and a lot of it textiles. And uh, the British managed to seize that 
the Dutch took over the eventually the spice trade, and that sort of faded out. Uh, but the shipping and the textiles uh, was the thing that powered the East India Company, and that was not done for, for for charity. It was done because it was the richest trade in the world, and it was supported by force of arms. And as the Mughal Empire fell apart. The company took on small regional player after small regional player and beat them using new techniques of warfare developed initially by Frederick the Great in Prussia. The idea of having a, a new infantry techniques, new horse artillery, new uh, the way you use the latest muskets and so on, and 18th century advances in ballistics. These were brought to India. It was found that these new techniques could defeat any Indian army. Uh, and in, in a very short time, between about 1750, and 1800, that's, you know, just 50 years, this corporation seized the richest country in the world and shipped its money home to build all the lovely, lovely National Trust houses we go around on our, on, on our summer uh, weekends and, 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 and admire today. That money didn't come from, from charity. It came from, from a mixture of successful economics, sea power and plunder. Satnam, as I said, you talk about all of that a lot in your book. But again, something a lot of people aren't wary of is just how much was brought back to this country. But if we move on to work out where racism fits into all of that, because it's, it wasn't it's not just about economics. And of course, you know, it's inextricably linked with racism, as you show in, in such detail. So where do you feel that that came from, that when the British established the sort of sense of racial superiority over the, the people they were colonising, because it wasn't just about bringing back the wealth. No, and uh, I would say that empire didn't begin as a racist enterprise. It began as a commercial enterprise, you know, which William has explained so well. But basically, the British found themselves in the 19th century running a quarter of the planet. And at the same time, there's all these weird I, racial science was emerging, these weird ideas of difference between Indians and Africans. And the British just looked at themselves and, and realized they were white men and they were lording it over mostly brown people. And that led to very vicious racism. And the British Empire created and nurtured a lot of the ideas of racism, which are now still popular around the West. And um, people sometimes say to me, you know, how can you blame the British Empire for racism? given racism is everywhere around the planet and British Empire wasn't there. And my response is, you know, British Empire was the biggest empire in human history. You know, we did spread a lot of the ideas. The, the ideas we had during the Enlightenment, you know, were spread to America, you know, really influential countries. So a lot of the modern ideas of difference, of racial difference, I think you can trace back to empire. Both of you bring up one of the things people come back at that with about the colonised also being capable of racialized horror in your books. You both talk about the story of the black hole of Calcutta, which, like a lot of these stories, is potentially exaggerated to suit a purpose. I mean, William? Yeah, the Black Hole of Calcutta, which was about the only bit of Indian history I did get in my prep school history uh, <laughs> curriculum, uh, was this story of, of how these poor captured Brits uh, were shoved into uh, a single room uh, and suffocated. And I should say that, you know, there's, there's, there's some discussion about whether this happened, but I'm, I'm very clear that it did because uh, one of my own ancestors was among them. Uh, a character called Stair Dalrymple, who, who was born in the same place as me, uh, from, the, from the same family, and uh, brought up in the, in, in the same place in Scotland, uh, were crammed into this room. What happened, though, was that it was it, this, this true story was massively exaggerated and turned into a parable of, of what was seen as, as, as Indian violence, uh, Indian savagery. Uh, and generations of children, particularly in the 19th century, were brought up on the story of the black hole of Calcutta. It's some sort of terrible words if Calcutta is some vast sort of chamber of horrors. And, 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 and uh, the Brits went there to, to bring light and enlightenment and democracy and all these wonderful things to this terrible black place. But, uh, you know, it's one small story of violence in an incredibly violent story. And um, over the last 20 years, writing this, these, these four books of the company, 
time after time, these unbelievable horrors which simply don't feature anywhere in our national consciousness. The biggest massacres of all probably took place in 1857 at the very end of the East India Company, when um, having conquered all of India, the biggest uprising against it took place not with some Indian prince or the Mughal dynasty uh, going out to get rid of the East India Company, its own sepoys, its own mercenary army, because 90% of the fighting was done not by white men sent out from India, but by brown men paid as mercenaries by the company. And and the the, the trick that the company pulled off from the very beginning was to borrow money from Indian bankers to pay top dollar, far more than its rivals, to recruit Indian sepoys, as they were called, Indian mercenary infantrymen. They rose up against the company. And in the aftermath of very nearly succeeding in throwing the Brits out of India, there were an extraordinary set of massacres. In, in, in Delhi alone, the East India Company army surrounded Delhi at the end, broke in through Kashmiri Gate, and massacred every male over the age of 16. Uh, and they blocked the exit gate so no one could get out. So in, in Delhi alone, tens of thousands of people were killed, often completely innocent civilians. And this was repeated uh, across the whole Ganges corridor in, in towns like Kanpur, Lucknow, uh, Meerut, and so on. Uh, and you know, there are no figures. There, you can't make a, a, an, an estimate. But, you know, it's not at all inconceivable that, you know, it was as many as 100,000 civilians uh, that were massacred at that time. It just doesn't appear. And, you know, a lot is talked about the Amritsar massacre, which Saddam himself has, has done a wonderful documentary on, which is well known from the film Gandhi when, uh, when you know, hundreds of Indians were mown down by... British bullets, uh, but over the course of the colonial period, and in, 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 in the in the mopping up of the 1857 uprising, hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians were killed in cold blood, and it's just not in our our curriculums. We just don't know the stuff. We know stories about uh, Nazi massacres in Europe, but we don't know the stories of of colonial massacres uh, in India. And this is stuff we we've got to know because other people know it. Uh, all around the world, people know this stuff, and and the only people, in a sense, who don't know it are the Brits. And they, you know, and it's a very embarrassing situation because we have this very benign self-image as the uh, uh, as these people that defeated the Nazis, who uh, who brought democracy to the world, and so on. Uh, and we just don't know the bad stuff. What we also don't know that you both point out is that it's not just now we're starting to have a debate over empire, that, that there's criticism and cultural debate around the subject. And it's really interesting to read in both of your books about how there was a huge amount of criticism. The, the East India Company, there was scandal, the subject of scandalous gossip, a, a play uh, in the Haymarket that was attacking them. We have this extraordinary, again, both of you write about the impeachment of Warren Hastings, which was this unbelievable spectacle. And and, I mean, Satnam, you say empire was never unanimous. There was not a single stage of empire when the project was not being criticized, which I mean, I'd love love you to comment on that. And also how frustrating that must be for you when people turn around and say, you know, why criticize it? It, It's it's always been a source of controversy. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, if you're brown, especially people are, are, are very keen to dismiss you as woke, and they like the idea that these sentiments of anti-colonialism have only just emerged in the 21st century. When actually, if you look at what people were saying at the time in Britain, within the establishment, empire was a highly contested thing. You know, Gladstone, our prime minister four times in the 19th century, railed against the jingoism of empire. Though at the same time, he did seize Egypt and got involved in the imperial project. Queen Victoria, you know, complained about you know, her generals coming back with, with human skulls and saying it, it stank too much of the medieval ages. Winston Churchill, the biggest clonist of all in the 20th century, described Jalen Wallabog as monstrous. Um, Richard Cobden, you know, the, the father of free trade, railed against what we did in India. He said it was a career of spoilation and wrong. There's a statue of him in Camden, and people sometimes think it's an imperial statue. They forget that he was so against the thing. He, he complained in Parliament about the Anglo-Sikh wars, about the Brits murdering so many Sikhs. I'm Sikh. And we need to remember this. I think colonialism is a, is a British tradition, but actually anti-colonialism 
all the way from Richard Cobden to George Orwell is also a very proud British tradition. And I would say it goes on to people like William Dalrymple. And it's not a new thing. It's not something the woke have just come up with in the 21st century. I was very encouraged researching the anarchy to find I went I went and got out all the the uh, 18th century papers from the uh, India Office Library now in the British Library, and it's extraordinary how much even in provincial papers you know places like the you know the the Shropshire Herald and, and, and things you know you have these you have these huge uh, campaigns against Robert Clive. And um, you have marches and, and, and enormous demonstrations in the middle of the 18th century calling this man a monster. Um, and Salem's absolutely right. This, this is something that, that many uh, Brits of conscience have been opposing hard for 200 years. Uh, and it's been an ongoing debate in every generation. And, and the other big thing, obviously, is that you know I've been writing this stuff for, for 20 years, and I, I very, very rarely receive, I mean, I get points of people contesting points of fact and so on, as any author does, but I've never received a single letter really saying I shouldn't be writing this stuff or uh, accusing me of being some sort of uh, uh, lefty revolutionary for doing so. But Sadman, because he's brown, received post bags full of this stuff um, uh, when, he wrote, when he wrote his book. And it's, and it's literally entirely because of the colour of his skin. Um, I mean, it still carries on to this day with your tele- recent television programme, Sam. I know you had a, a, a bundle of, uh, of very nasty males. Um, well, you, you tell the story. Yeah, no, I have had a lot of racist abuse in the last year. Although the surreal thing is after the documentary, which featured some of the racist abuse, <laughs> I actually been trolled mainly by the far left because... Uh, you know, I, I signed a letter objecting to Jeremy Corbyn's anti-Semitism, and it was decided that how dare I speak about racism, given I personally stopped uh, the most anti-racist prime minister in history from being elected. And so, you know, I, I guess this empire really triggers people. It does. It really yeah. upsets people, and it upsets people on the far left and on the far right. And for a brown person, it's really emotionally exhausting. This is my last event of the year. And um, <laughs> I've got to say, I can't say I'm keen to do any more because especially at live events, I get people, every event, there's always a man of about 70, a white man, actually some, one time a brown man coming up and they will shout at me for 10 minutes or five or 10 minutes. And it works out in that everyone gets animated. There's a proper argument. There's a sense that the event matters, but it's really emotionally exhausting for me to just be the subject of this intense hatred, which goes back, I think it's a, I think it's a nat- national psychosis that we have. You talk about the sort of reason behind that. It's, it's probably this a kind of balance sheet approach to empire, which, which you refer to again quite, quite a few times in Empire Land. The, the sort of intense arguments and disagreements around empire, the biggest of this being this question, was empire good or bad? Uh, you know, which weighs up colonial crimes against native crimes. You say, of course, quite rightly, it's, it's complicated, it's messy, but that it's impossible to discuss British empire in this century without being dragged into this binary consideration. I mean, you know, I, I suppose, do, do you see a way out of that? Because what we need to see, as you talk about, is history, as to quote, I think, Simon Sharma, you quote, as argument, and yet we don't seem to be able to do that. Um, I, I do. Most of the time, I feel like we're almost emerging from it. There was a story recently uh, on the BBC News website about an A-level question in history. And the question was like, on balance, did we treat the Native Americans well or not? And there was outrage about that question because it's stupid. You know, it's offensive, <laughs> you know. And I think that shows that we're now getting over this idea that you can measure hundreds of years of history and give it a five-star rating as if it's like something you've bought on Amazon. I think we're finally losing it. Unfortunately, there are people who've learned about empire through the balance sheet. You know, they've been told that empire is good. It's part of their identity. Often their family were involved in empire. So it's a very personal thing. And so they cannot let it go. And I cannot tell you the extent to which people go to, to make this point to me, even though my book, as you say, mentions Five or six times, I'm not interested in the balance sheet. You know, there's one guy who's turned up to almost, he's probably listening now, every live event I've done, pretty much all my web events. He's commented on every article I've written. He's called into radio shows. He's reviewed it on Amazon. He's reviewed it on Goodreads. He's reviewed it for another way. He just keeps going on and on about the fact that I have, I have been too mean about Empire. 
that I need to understand that empire was good. And my point is, you can't say that empire was good or bad. It was really complicated. There were good things, there were bad things. We need to get beyond this. We need to just understand it rather than trying to give it, a, a come to some kind of moral conclusion. What's interesting is that the Brits are very easy to judge other people's empires. You know, we, we, we have this idea yeah. that you know, uh, the, uh, the French uh, were, were, were terrible in Algeria, that the, the Belgians were even worse in, in Congo, and of course the worst of all of the Germans, whether it's in Southwest Africa or, or, or later the Nazis. Uh, but somehow, you know, the, the obvious logic that to t- take other people's countries to use scientific advances and 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 and, and superior weaponry uh, to seize people's lands and freedom and to plunder their raw raw materials for, for the benefit of the mother country and uh, and the commercial enterprises there it's obviously wrong it's you know any other you know if we were conquered by someone and we spent our you know much of modern history uh, in in the 20th century fighting off other people trying to conquer us but that you know but somehow when we we do it. It's okay, and, we, and it's it comes from this sort of weird nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties confectionizing, if that's right, if that's a real word, or, or uh, this sort of uh, rose tinted version of the empire that was fed to us by Merchant Ivory films, by The Jewel and the Crown, uh, by a whole variety of sort of nice eighteenth uh, uh, century bodice rippers, often with Colin Firth sort of striding in breeches through some nice pond somewhere in a National Trust property, and the whole thing is given a, a lovely a lovely feel as if it's, as if it's rather wonderful of course the, the railway be... documentaries you've got to mention the railway yeah we've got to have michael portillo in red trousers and a, and a, a nice uh, safari suit or you know it's sipping gin and tonics in in some colonial lounge that whole whether it's the it's the it's the, it's the blessed railway documentaries whether it's the uh, the, the feeling that uh, the whole british empire took place on some gorgeous lawn in similar with ladies in crinoline dishes, uh, uh, dresses floating over the Bangalore club lounge while um, Maharajas are playing croquet and, uh, and an elephant is swishing its tail. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and it's all this gorgeous picture of, of, of something really rather sort of romantic and exciting. And, and I think in a sense, sort of, you know, it, it, British Indians played into this a bit in, in every Indian restaurant that has a Raj theme, whether it's called the Raj or the, uh, or the Simla or something. And uh, and and these pictures of of, of Brits and solar topies, uh, and we t- and we we imagine that somehow our version of stealing raw raw materials, of conquering people, of mowing them down with Gatling guns, and establishing our rule over theirs was different from uh, from the Germans, the French, or the Belgians. But it isn't. Empire means going to someone's country uh, and, and establishing a rule over a pile of corpses. And, and we need to know that we did this too and that much of it was very, very unpleasant. This is, you know, Orwell's favorite, famous line, that behind every, behind every empire lies a pile of corpses. That sort of, well, nostalgia, the sort of slightly false nostalgia, Satnam, you talk about that a, a lot in the book. You talk about a lot of those things that William just addressed, you know, the sort of restaurants, the cocktails named the colonial or whatever it was that you you, you mentioned in the book. And again, you both talk about the idea that sort of there is still today a company that that feels it's a good idea to call itself the East India Company, which sells tea and, you know, as far as I know, does quite well. I I mean, nothing sort of symbolises more that amnesia, that sort of strange nostalgia than the fact that that feels like a good idea. Ms. Satnam. Yeah, I mean, I did actually go to one of the outlets to write about it. And actually, I couldn't actually, didn't see many people actually buying stuff. I do wonder how they sustain themselves. But these outlets exist. There's several in London. I think there's one in Dubai. And it's actually run by an Indian guy. And it's sometimes people like to point out, oh, it's run by an Indian, so therefore it's okay. It's like, it's not okay. You know, there were Indians involved who did well out of the East India Company. That didn't make it okay then. But I think he's, he thinks there's a market in empire nostalgia. And seemingly there is. I mean, we are, we are ruled over politicians who are massively imperially nostalgic. nostalgic. You've got Boris Jan- Johnson, you know, writing his books about Winston Churchill. You've got Jacob Rees-Mogg writing his incredibly nostalgic books about imperial Victorians. Incredibly crap book as well. But... <laughs> 
we seem to buy into it. And uh, of course, worst of all, are the, are the documentaries about the railways. You know, Talk about just, that, Adam, for a second. I love your, I love your rant yeah, on the railways. The thing is, I actually looked up how many documentaries there have been about the Indian railways, and they were literally talking about dozens on mainstream TV. It's like if you retire as a white TV presenter, uh, you get given a documentary about the Indian railways. And uh, the, the narrative is always, oh, look at what we gave the Indians. Look at what they didn't have until we came. But if you look at the facts of what happened, the railways were built to benefit the British, to take goods out of India, to respond to uprisings. And if you look at the maps of the railways, often they were from a quarry to the port. Those weren't useful to Indians. And when they were built, they were incredibly racist in that Indians traveled in the worst carriages. Sikhs, who were largely indulged by the British, still weren't allowed to drive the trains. They weren't trusted. And for me, Indian Railways are racist, exploitative, you know, organisations. And yet we seem to think in Britain they're, they're a wonderful thing, a gift. And when you tried to sort of pitch that documentary idea, somebody said to you... Yeah, I pitched it. I've pitched it several times to TV executives. And one said, the thing is that um, British viewers don't want their prejudices challenged. And you know what? He was right in the sense that the viewers of TV nowadays are quite old. They're in their 60s, 70s and 80s. And... They want to be comforted at 6.30. So they rather watch Michael Patillo in his red trousers drinking a gin and tonic than someone like me saying, actually, your fantasy is based on racism and exploitation and hundreds of thousands of Indians died to build it. <laughs> that idea that we want to be comforted, that people want to be comforted, does that feed into why this incredibly important issue is so sort of dramatically missing from... The curriculum. There is a gaping hole in it in our education. I was lucky enough to do sort of post-colonial literature for my, but it, I had to wait till I got to university to choose that. N none of any of this fed into my history throughout my school years. I want to hear from both of you on this, uh, William. I, obviously, you feel this is very important, and it's imperative now that it's addressed. Yeah, I mean, most of most of our kids when they go to school get given. Um, you know, a lot of Henry VIII and a lot of the Tudors. Then you jump to the Nazis. There's a brief stop off with Florence Nightingale, uh, where, you know, lots of lovely uh, soldiers are nursed in Scutari. And, uh, and then there's a little stop off for the emancipation of the slaves and, and the British freed the slaves. And then we liber liberate the world from Nazis. So British kids, uh, certainly to O level, are given this sort of menu of British history, which presents us as, as the liberators of the slaves, the, the nurses of the sick, and the people who, who, who saved the world from Nazism. The fact that in the meantime, we conquered three quarters of the world, wiped out whole native populations, drove several uh, peoples such as the Caribs in the Caribbean or the Tasmanian Aborigines to complete extinction, giving out hunting passes in the case of the Tasmanian Aborigines to anyone that wants to go off for a weekend shooting, uh, could go off and shoot them. Uh, this sort of thing just never appears in our uh, in our history. And I think what, what's so important is that other people have it. You know, the Irish learn all about the terrible things the British did during the potato famine. Uh, half of Indian uh, history curriculum is taken up with the freedom struggle and the uh, and, and you know stories of things like Jalim Wallabag and, uh, and and how the Indians liberated themselves. And we see generations of Brits, often with good history degrees and, and humanities degrees, going out into the world, just do not know this stuff. Everyone else does, except us. And so we, are, we, we alone have this glowing self-image of British values. There's something wonderful. They, you know, we don't associate British values with genocide and, and hunting permits to, to wipe out uh, recalcitrant tribes. I was really taken by a tweet that you quote, Satnam, in the book, which says, if British people understood colonial history half as well as they understand the details of Henry VIII's wives, Britain would be a different country. <laughs> Yeah, and <laughs> the thing is that even the stuff we do teach, like um, Williams has mentioned, Henry VIII, the Tudors, Florence Nightingale, and World War II, there's an imperial dimension to all of those stories. So in the Tudor court, there were black musicians, there were black people in Tudor Britain, so much so that Queen Elizabeth I complained about there being too many black people in London in the 1600s. The, you know, Boer War, we developed concentration camps. Um, World War One, World War Two, six million troops from across empire helped us win those wars. The, the money and the resources of empire helped us win those wars. But I was never told that. I sat through dozens of Remembrance Day services throughout my education 
No one ever said your people were there too. You know, 83,000 Sikhs died. No one ever mentioned that. And we were a racially diverse student base. We're in Wolverhampton. A quarter of the city is black or Asian. And no one ever mentioned it. And, you know, I remember... So I mean, that when when you get films like Dunkirk and you and you do get a few Indian actors turning up in the in in, in the movies, uh, you get people complaining that this is a woke imposition of, of the twenty first century rather than actual representation of reality. Yeah, Lawrence Fox built his whole career on the the racist lie that you know Sikhs shouldn't belong in the film nineteen seventeen. But even at school, I remember Bernard Manning appearing on the BBC and saying there were no Pakis at Dunkirk, and it's like. He was right in that Pakistan didn't exist then. They were Indians, but they were at bloody Dunkirk. But that's the level of the national amnesia. But it's, it's also deliberate, you know. After World War I, black troops were not invited to the peace march on purpose for racial reasons. This is institutional, sometimes conscious racism. There was also, I think, a feeling in the in the 50s and 60s, it, it, it wasn't so much a racist thing, but empire became very unfashionable. So, for example, the Tate Gallery had all these paintings that were among the most popular paintings in the Tate in the 19th century, such as Lady Butler's famous picture uh, of the last man from the retreat from Kabul limping into Jalalabad on his horse. Now, that was a, you know, one of the, the great iconic images of empire. It was one of the most popular pictures at the Tate. In 1950, it got sent off to a, a regimental museum in Somerset because it, you know, it, it, you know, it wasn't the 60s vibe. You didn't want to see pictures of the retreat from Kabul. It was, you know, it was old hat. And you get in the, in the 70s, you know, a lot of jokes about empire in Monty Python, because it's, it's considered to be this sort of, you know, incredibly boring. Then you get ripping yarns with Michael, with Michael Palin, that people take the mickey out of empire because it's, it, it's old, it's fusty, it's, it's, it's unhip. In that process of removing those pictures from the museums in the case of you know pictures of, of of empire in australia and new zealand they get sent off to australia and new zealand so that the tate you know just dispenses itself of half its colonial collection and packs it off to australia because they don't want it because it's sitting in storage uh, and so things it isn't always a consciously racist thing but just because empire became fusty boring the past uh, a matter for monty python jokes this stuff is packed off and and put into storage or sent off to the provinces or or or, or just taken off view and so We've forgotten this stuff. You know, it, 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 by the time that you get Michael Palin doing ripping yarns in the 1970s, Roger of the Raj is a figure of fun, and uh, and, and you know, and, and and you have jokes about it because it, it, it's so boring. <laughs> That's the idea. This amnesia or, or this sort of inability to to look at history as we should, or the whole picture. You know, Satnam, you talk about it again. So you say you ask this question. You've been asking yourself a lot. I'm sure both of you have. Why can't we as a country necessarily face our history and the whole picture and look it in the eye like perhaps other countries? I, I've forgotten the German words um, that, that, you know, Germ Germany are, as you say, I, I think you're quoting Neil McGregor, actually, from the British Museum, for, former head of the British Museum, who, who talks about how Germany can use history to sort of think about the future. Whereas we have to sort of find some comfort in it. We can't interrogate it in the right way. Absolutely. I think... The pain of the story is one of the reasons we choose not to look at it. But also, that I think there's a more mundane th uh, reason for it. I think it's just very complicated. I mean, I'm supposedly an intelligent person. Why did it take me 44 years to begin this journey to understand empire? It's partly because it's so bloody complicated. You know, you, you look, at, frankly, I mean, William's books are amazing and they've helped me understand empire. But also, they're a bit intimidating when you see four of them in a box. You know, you're like... God, I haven't got the time to read these. Every history book. Oh, I've just been sent a history book. Where is it gone? It's massive. Every history book is huge. Actually, it's holding up my computer. Every, every history book is about 1,500 pages long. It's complicated. People disagree about where empire began, where it ended. It's a life's work to just try to get your head around it. And so I think that's one of the reasons we've not taught it. It's much easier to teach World War II. Clear beginning, clear end, six years, clear morality. You know, we beat the evil racist Germans. 
Whereas even the morality of empire is very complicated. Also, it's this idea that we've been very good, in, in a sense, at downplaying it. I mean, and we've got a sort of tradition of that. And, and that takes us back to the East India Company, because as you, I think you mentioned, you know, they have very humble building and they were very good at sort of being one thing when they were in India and then very quiet about things when they were at home. Yeah, the, the East India Company original headquarters in Leadenhall Street at the time of Plassey is five windows wide. It's literally the size of, you know, a small, uh, from the front, it, it's the size of a small village rectory uh, and very pretty. Uh, it, but it's, you know, the headquarters in Calcutta is this enormous thing modelled on Kedleston Hall um, uh, with, you know, two enormous side wings. And uh, uh, so they, they they play themselves as this very modest thing in the city of London. And, and then they proclaim themselves as, as, as emperors of India uh, when they're in Calcutta. Uh, so my favourite thing about the East India Company building is that it contained a museum, you know. And for me, that we forget that actually we, one of the things I didn't realise is that we built our museums as we built our empire. That actually the East India Company offices had a museum and that collection ended up in the VNA. The stuff you're seeing in the VNA, some of the most famous exhibits. Tipu's Tiger. Tipu's and... Tiger. Those were in the East India Company Museum. Sorry, offices in, on Leadenhall Street. We, we talked uh, about Robert Clive. We, we've established sort of Clive of India was a very controversial character at the time quite despised uh, and eventually ended his own life, perhaps through sort of angst at what he'd done. And a statue of him still, or there is a statue of him in Whitehall, which Satnam, you say sort of makes you feel quite uncomfortable every time you go to perhaps, I mean, I don't know if you still have to go see government um, officials, but when you do, there he is. It's a strange situation given his reputation at the time. Yeah, I think about that statue a lot because I suspect that Rishi Sunak an Indian, looks at it every day. You know, he can see it through the treasury windows. And, you know, Clive had deeply racist views about Indians. He took the modern equivalent of £700 million out of India, out of just a few visits to India. Um, He killed himself. And Samuel Johnson speculated that he killed himself because he was overwhelmed with remorse for his crimes. This is Samuel Johnson saying this at the time. And then a couple of hundred years later, or a few decades later, you get someone being nostalgic about Clive and putting up a statue. And now we're in the 21st century. It's Curzon. It's, it's Curzon returning from India puts the oh, statue really? up. And it's, what's fascinating is that it's, it's you know, at the same time as all those Confederate generals are appearing uh, in the southern United States. It's not at the time. It's, it's later. There's not until the 20th century that Clive is 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 turned from you know he was satirised at the time as Lord Vulture responsible for the bomb for the Great Bengal Famine which which left a million corpses across Bengal but uh, uh, by 1908 by the time Curzon gets back from India Clive is suddenly Clive of India the the imperial hero and he's put outside Downing Street where he remains and the same thing happened with Colston you know the statue was built a long time after he died and this is the there's an idea that statues are history and they're not. A statue is one person's view of a historical person at one point in history. And those views are allowed to change. There's been obviously a lot about statues in the last few years. It's caused, I I don't no one needs me to tell them, a huge amount of uproar. And uh, William, I know that you've suggested that what could happen to these statues is that they could be put in, in, in a separate museum. I think you've suggested the idea of a museum of, of colonialization. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that it's a shame to lose historical objects. And I, I made some enemies at the time Colston's statue came down by saying, you know, I didn't like the idea of iconoclasm. If it's if it's Colston's statue today, it could be, um, you know, mogul buildings in India tomorrow. If you it, 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 To destroy icons is not the answer. But to it seems to me that you need to explain these things. So when Clive is sitting outside Downing Street, that's a statement. And you need either to take it down and put it in a museum or you need to put up a plaque beside it and, 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 give, and give a balanced view. India has been very good with this. The, the, you know, when we left India, we left tens of thousands of imperial statues in every town in India. The Indians didn't destroy them. They didn't pulp them. They put them into parks with, with um, explanations. 
Uh, and you can go to a place called Coronation Park outside Delhi today, and you can see all the uh, the swaggering viceroys in their robes that used to sit at the uh, in the main imperial thoroughfares of Delhi, all sitting in a park. And there, you know, it's an impressive bit of history. And, and they look, you know, it's very Ozymandias now. Here are all these these guys in these robes, often with uh, amazing pieces of sculpture. There's a wonderful one of George V by a, a sculptor called Jagger, uh, who's who grandfather of a certain uh, a certain singer who. Uh, who built this extraordinary image. But you know, it isn't something that should be destroyed, but it is something that should be conserved and explained. And, and this would give, in a sense, a double benefit of A, providing a venue where kids can learn about the empire and can make their own mind up about the, the complexity of this story, uh, and also yeah, uh, take down some of the statues of, of war criminals who remain. When you go to Germany, you don't expect to find SS generals on plinths. Uh, but there are, if you go to Glasgow, uh, there's a man called Colin Campbell sitting at the uh, at the top of Socky Hall Street, uh, who made Indians lick up the blood uh, of the murdered women in Jalit uh, Kampur, uh, who sewed mutinous sepoys into pigskins and blew them from cannons. So, I mean, we have war criminals. Another guy called Nicholson, who did the same sort of thing, is sitting in the, in the middle of Belfast today. We have war criminals sitting in our in our cities, celebrated on plinths now. That should not be the case. You either explain it or you take it down and put it in a museum. Yeah, I mean, statues, I feel like plaques aren't the answer. There's nothing more visible than a plaque on a statue, apart from perhaps a statue itself, you know, because they are street furniture. My preferred solution is at one, one point in every year, we have a festival where we pelt the statues we don't like with tomatoes, you know, <laughs> and it's therapeutic, it's educational. We don't get accused of pulling down, <laughs> deleting history, and we can move on. I, I actually I think that's a great idea. I hope you're sort of in conversations to actually make that happen. I need to find a tomato producer willing to uh, back back my idea, sponsor it. Yes, a bit of a waste. We'll have to work out what to do with the tomatoes <laughs> afterwards. Oh, many, many questions coming in because, of course, there are. Um, so I don't quite know where to begin. And I hope, I, I, looking at some of them, that I've we've answered them um, as we've been going along. Safia asked why why you think the topic is missing from the school curriculum, which we have covered, but but perhaps not you know directly. What would be your sort of direct answer, Satnam? To, perhaps I come to you to that question. Why why is it? I think it's because it's so bloody complicated. That's one of the main reasons. It's painful. It's contested. That's the other thing. Almost everything William I have said is contested. I can imagine some of our frenemies, William. Objecting, I know people object to the the narrative we've given of Clive's life. There's people, historians around today, who think Clive was a great man, you know. And so everything is contested. That's one of the reasons. Uh, William, I'll take the next question now. I'm going to ask um, to you. A question says, "Why do we still have OBEs and MBEs? Would either of you accept such an honour?" Well, I certainly haven't been offered one. I'm sure Satna will be offered one very shortly. Nah, never. <laughs> but it's a, it is a tricky one because you know, obviously, it, it is held up as this as this great national honour. On the other hand, it is a it, it is a very dodgy institution of 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 the British Empire. So, uh, if it was called the Order of British Excellence, it could still be the OBE, but not mm. uh, throw us into this whole debate. I actually don't have a problem with it because I just think empire is everywhere. You know, empire is in Allah. A lot of our words come from empire. I am here because of empire. 83,000 Sikhs died for empire. You know, I feel like that by rejecting it, you're rejecting the sacrifice of millions of people. And so I actually don't have a problem with it, but I think you'd have to accept it, acknowledging that some terrible things were done in its name. Indy says, thank you for raising awareness of this important subject in history. I had to learn this on my own accord through family and the local Asian community. It is important for this history to be acknowledged, but I notice many British are not interested in this subject. How can we change this? I think there's a huge amount of interest in this. I mean, in, in, I built the last 20 years of my life, <laughs> so uh, I've, I've financed it by writing about it. And, and there is, there's, you know, and people feel they should know this stuff. Uh, I mean, the fact that it's not in the curriculum, yet it's obviously so important, if not the most important thing the British ever did. 
uh, means that many intelligent people are longing to learn this stuff. Uh, plus, I mean, it's really fascinating. It's it, it's such a strange world, Empire Land. It's uh, it's an extraordinary tale. Uh, so, no, I don't agree that it's uh, that there's no appetite for it. I think I think people, you know, get get hot under the collar over it, and as as, as uh, uh, Sandham says, we we are both constantly haunted by frenemies who uh, who contest everything we say on Twitter. But they're, uh, they're probably not uh, even frenemies, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I agree. And actually, I think Black Lives Matter has accelerated the interest because suddenly there's a real mass interest in in how colonialism has created modern ideas of racism. And I feel like young people are so into this subject. I know young people are going to school and asking their history teacher about British Empire. I know I get emails every day. And I think it's changing. We've, we've kind of pretended it didn't exist, but now everyone really wants to know about it. When people talk about the UK political class being imperialist in the 21st century, are they just talking about the Conservative Party or does it extend to the Liberal Democrats, Labour, UKIP, Brexit and DUP? I think it definitely extends to Labour because like, there hasn't been a, an apology for John and Wallabog and we had quite a few Labour prime ministers. Gordon Brown, you know, got involved with some imperial nostalgia and but at the same time it's the conservative party the right wing of the conservative party who've decided to launch a culture war over him since black lives matter you know saying that you know woke people need to be got rid of as trustees in museums slagging off the national trust for publishing research into colonialism and they've made it a culture war issue so the tories are more involved in it but i think it's a pan-political nostalgia I think just there's so much ignorance about this issue. I mean, I, I live in Delhi most of the year, and I see generations of, of, of high commissioners and diplomats coming out, all kind of assuming that Indians are very keen on the rod. And, 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 this, and this is something that's getting more and more marked because India is, is, is getting less and less keen. Uh, or it, it was never that keen, and, and, it, <laughs> and it is now more and more uh, angry about uh, British colonialism. There is, uh, particularly, I think, since Shashi Theroux's book, uh, Inglorious Empire, came out, there is a kind of, you know, the, the people are now just sort of jaw-dropping about, about some of the atrocities which took place, which they which they didn't know about. Uh, and yet the, the Brits just don't understand this. And, and I've seen, you know, over the last 20 years living in Delhi, very well-meaning, very highly educated British diplomats coming out and talking again about British values to Indians. British values uh, means, means mowing down innocent British Protesters in uh, in a closed space in Amritsar, or, or uh, matter, you know, sewing up people in pigskins and blowing them from the mouths of cannons. You know, there, there's no, uh, we don't have a very good reputation uh, in India, but the Brits don't seem to know this. My favourite example of this is Tony Blair in his autobiography, uh, handing back Hong Kong to the Chinese and saying he was only dimly aware of the history. I love that. I mean. You can bet that every Hong Kong Chinese person knew about the Opium Wars and how they, they lost Hong Kong. But the prime minister of the country didn't know the history. I find and that then amazing. famously, um, um, Cameron and, uh, and, and Osborne, when they went to uh, try to war red poppies, because it was Remembrance Day when they went to, when they went to Peking. And of course, for, for the Chinese, this is a symbol of the fact that, okay, back to the East India Company, the East India Company was the largest narco operation in history and made the meddling cartel look like sort of Andy Pandy. Uh, uh, the whole of Colombian cocaine is nothing compared to, to what we did with our opiate shipments. We we uh, generated the, the the entire triangular trade from India was was growing opium in India, selling it in China for opium, and then uh, uh, selling the tea we bought in China for um, to, to to the rest of the world, including America, which is what the Boston Tea Party is all about. When 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 the the, the tea uh, is shoved into Boston Harbor at the beginning of the American Revolution, that is East India Company tea that's arrived from Hong Kong in exchange for opium. Well, another question. I'm going to going to move you both on to. This is an interesting one. Jonathan was wondering if you've heard of a museum in Bristol maybe 20 years ago that only lasted about six years and was hardly visited at all. The collections it contained are now in storage. Um, do either of you know about this museum? I do, yeah. It's a, it's a museum of empire, wasn't it? I don't think a museum of empire makes sense. It's like trying to take the egg out of a baked cake because empire, imperial history is British history. You can't separate it. You can't just have a, like a museum of empire. It's, in fact, like I've just said, it was, it was around in the Tudors, it was there in the Boer War, 
say in World War One and Two, it needs to be part. It's like having Black History Month, which I I don't agree with because I think it creates the idea that Black History is something you study for a few weeks and you forget yeah. about it. Yeah. It's an integral part of British history. I I actually don't agree with with Satnamir. We have we don't disagree on much, but I I, I think finally found could... something. <laughs> I think you could do a very good museum of uh, of uh, uh, of empire, but it's that was not particularly a good one. I, I once lectured there when it was open, and and it was it was you know slightly tatty displays. It didn't really have any good stuff in it because it was a a modern creation. Didn't have any budget. And then I think it collapsed in a rather dodgy manner. There was all sorts of questions about where the where the exhibits were going and what had happened to them, and and things were disappearing. Uh, so and so no, that wasn't the answer. But I think you, I mean, potentially you could have a spectacular version of. I don't know whether uh, anyone here has been to the African American Museum in Washington, which is the most spectacular museum I've, I've almost ever been to. It's, it hasn't it hasn't got extraordinary exhibits, but it's so well presented. The whole story of slavery and uh, and and then the the story of the uh, the freedom struggle and. Um, Martin Luther King and so on. If you were to do something like that on that scale with that level of museum craft and 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 the sensitivity with which that story is told, it could be utterly astonishing. It could be a wonderful new landmark. So I, I on yeah. this occasion respectfully disagree with my friend. Well, what, one area we might <laughs> sort of meet is the where the statue of Colston is now. It's just the statue is so interesting. Now it's in a museum. People are queuing to visit it, whereas it was up as a statue for centuries and no one noticed it you know some good things to to come out of the sort of controversy uh, and uh, somebody asks and i know Satnam, you talk about this um in empire land quite a bit the the sort of issues around artifacts being kept in museums when countries are asking for them back some an anonymous questioner asks what your view is on, on those well i'm 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 not someone who wants to close down museums although some people do I think some our museums are excellent in many ways, but if we gave back some of the contested items, we'd still have a lot of stuff. I mean, the British Museum has only one percent of its collection on display. So if it did, if it gave back some of the contested items, you'd end up with incredible scholarship, amazing exhibitions. It would improve our relationships with the world at a time we really need to improve our relationships with the world, and it would be really good for us. There's an idea that if we gave one thing back, I think David Cameron famously said that if we gave the the Koh-i-Noor diamond back, the British Museum will be empty. The British Museum is never going to be empty. They've got loads of shit. (laughs) (laughs) Is that something you agree on, William, or is this another sort of... I read a whole book on the Koh-i-Noor, quite separate to this, um, with Anita Anand. uh, And... um, I mean, that's a very interesting story because uh, it, it's not just India that claims the Koh-i-Noor. The Sikhs, At one point, right? certainly when we wrote the book, uh, Pakistan, mm. Iran, Afghanistan, Bangladesh and the Taliban separately uh, were all <laughs> claiming the Taliban. Mullah Omar apparently sent a, sent a message to the Queen, uh, arguing very bad, because it was, it was in a sense, the collateral which, by which Ahmed Shahab Dali founded the, the state of Afghanistan. And uh, the Iranians think it's theirs too, because Nadir Shah took it. Uh, the, the Pakistanis wanted it because it used to be in Lahore, where, which is now in Pakistan. And the Bangladeshis wanted it because the Pakistanis wanted it. <laughs> uh, the, Sikhs, so it the Sikhs want it as well the Sikhs want it as well yeah. so it's it's, just, it, it's always been it's rather like the you know the, the ring in Lord of the Ring which divides everyone and uh, turns even Bilbo into uh, and, uh, and and Frodo into monsters uh, that coming always something like that it's this it's this thing which which uh, as soon as anyone mentions it has people obeying for each other's blood I once did a, a, a BBC sort of Facebook live event uh, and we had open warfare Iranians fighting with Afghans Afghans fighting with Sikhs, Sikhs fighting with uh, Bangladeshis. It was actually mayhem. Brian asks a question, which uh, you mentioned near the start when we talked about the Black Hole of Calcutta, William, that you know you had, I think, one of your ancestors was, was there. Uh, I heard earlier, Satnam, a podcast you did with Dan Snow when he is sort of talking about the complicated involvement of his own um, ancestors in empire. So I suppose, and, and you tell him not to, to sort of beat himself up about it too much. But Brian asks William how you feel about the fact your ancestors were actors in the in the imperial project and how you personally deal with being part of the complex history. 
that's very much the reason I, I, I wrote, spent the last 20 years researching that, because not one generation, but almost every generation of my family. We were absolutely the prime stuff which the East India Company was made of. We were provincial Scottish minor gentry who had social ideas larger than, than their pockets and the states, and, and they could never afford the lifestyle to which they aspired to. So one after another generation would send off the younger sons to India. I've got a, uh, cousins uh, who are from the West Coast of Scotland who did the same, but with the slave trade and, and, and Satnam's excellent two-part uh, Channel 4 documentary, which I recommend to everybody. Um, he meets Alex Renton, who's, who, who's a cousin of mine, uh, whose family were involved in, in, in the slave trade. So you have the West Coast of Scotland tends to look towards the Caribbean uh, and, and the East Coast tended to look towards India. And, and this was how Scotland, which even more than England, was a hugely impoverished, one of the poorest countries uh, in Europe turned itself into a very rich place thanks to the, the double engine of the, of the Caribbean slave trade uh, and, the, uh, and the East India Company. And a huge number, a, a disproportionate number of the public buildings and great estates and, and massive country houses of Scotland were built on, on, on the basis of those two uh, sources of wealth. So, yeah, my response to this has been to, to spend 20 years writing about this uh, and, uh, and absolutely uh, confronting this head on. Thank you both very, very much. It's a fascinating conversation. I'm so glad that we, we had you both here. And uh, thank you all very much indeed, lots of you, for joining us. Thank you. This week's podcast starred William Dalrymple and Satnam Sangera. The presenter was Hannah McInnes and the editor was John Doughty. There is plenty more history in our archive, including my interview with BBC historian Greg Jenner, Stephen Pinker and Stephen Fry on the Enlightenment, Alice Roberts on prehistoric humans, Yong Chang on the Chinese Civil War, Geoffrey Robertson on the Elgin Marbles, and much more. All of it is at howtoacademy.com or wherever good podcasts are found. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.